Tema Steg is the executive director of Women in Media, a nonprofit organization that promotes gender equality in the film industry. Tema is also a production designer and art director known for her work on feature films such as Kissing Jessica Stein and American Splendor. Alison Venor is the secretary and treasurer of Women in Media. Allison is also the Emmy Award-winning producer of the digital series After Forever, starring Kevin Spiritus. Tema Steg, Allison Venor at Women in Media. Welcome to the creative process. Thank you so much for having yeah. us, Mia. Yeah, so I want to go into your individual creative processes, but just tell us a little bit about Women in Media, your organization, and why you decided to found it and its mission and vision. Well, I started Women in Media in 2010 as sort of a community group. We talked about women above and below the line because there weren't any organizations or conversations really happening about getting more women in the below the line positions, meaning women in the crew who are, you know, in the camera department, the art department, the grip and electrics department. There was only conversation happening about more women directors and being a scenic artist and a production designer, I knew that there are so many women in the crew, right? And there's only one director. So if we only aimed for one, we would never get to parity and there would never be room for women like myself who wanted to advance from these crew positions. So it started out more as a networking event for the community. And also I was teaching at a college where the women really needed a lot of support. So between what I learned about what the women needed and also being out in the community, it became apparent that we needed a little more trajectory for the needle to move. So I started a crew list that was of women. And from these events, there would be some men as well. And then everybody who got these contact sheets would have the opportunity to learn more about each other beyond the event. They would take each other to lunch or to coffee and really build their social networks, which is really how our business works. It's very, very social. And I became known for that. People kept asking me about these contact sheets and also asking me for crew recommendations. And since I don't want to be an agent, <laughs> I would put it online and let people handle it themselves. So I created a Google Doc that blew up to over 2,000 women in 26 departments and tried to take myself out of it. But it turns out that Google Docs are not that stable when you get to that many people using them. And it was clear that we needed to create more of a 501c3 situation, create a proper crew list database and created a membership organization in 2017. And it became very clear that we needed to push really hard and really fast to get to parity because historically what would happen is that, and this is going back to the original six with the DGA, a group of women who tried to sue the DGA to get to parity within their own guild. They were successful, but they kind of failed in some ways too, because the government decided that the DJ couldn't sue itself because it was basically a sexist organization. Another story. Anyway, so essentially the numbers would move forward by like three or four points. And then the next year they would go way back and they go forward a couple of points and they'd go way back. And this was for 40 years. And I realized that something had to change. And nobody was making it change. And I had to jump in and see if I could do it. 
there was no reason not to try. So we went 501c3 in 2017. And, you know, I was so lucky to be able to get so many incredible people around me who rallied, who are absolutely on board with this crazy, crazy idea of getting all women to parity, to get all these productions to parity, which to my mind is 40 to 60% every department, every crew, every show. And people thought I was absolutely insane in 2016 when I was talking about it. They told me it would never happen in our lifetime. And I was like, okay, five to seven years, let's go for that. And then another 15 years to make it a habit because clearly these like little incremental changes that we kept hearing about, they weren't working. So we've been pushing hard and fast and trying to make the change in this time frame, And it seems to be catching on. Finally, the needle is moving and we're getting a lot of buy-in, which is incredibly heartening because it was a very lonely place for a while with me waving my arms, trying to get other organizations and different companies to get on board with this idea of having more women in all these departments. So it's quite an exciting time seeing it become kind of normalized and seeing other people take it on as if it was their idea, even though there was so much pushback from 2010 to 20. 16 and then you know it was pretty crazy if i didn't have allison on the team i'd still be like waving my arms in the air trying to get people on board so i'm incredibly grateful to have team members like allison and we have another member scotty Jeanette, who's on our events committee and that's the force it's like when you get buy-in from people who are incredibly competent and smart and hardworking and have a fire in their bellies to change things, you know, it's heartening because you can't do it by yourself. It's too exhausting and it's a hard road. I mean, being an activist is not easy. And this is something that's close to me. I'm an artist, but in my family, I have, including my mother and my stepfather and a number of people working in production design, scenic. So, and I have heard their stories and their struggles and that imbalance that still exists, but the amazing inroads. So it's just wonderful that you have an organization that obviously it grew organically because there still is a need, but the progress is amazing what you've done. And so rightly that you identify that it's not just directors because there's a certain personality type that is a director or producer or certain roles. And then there are other, you know, if I might say, because women and men, it's not equal, you know, it's not, I'm not talking about the numbers of people who are hired, but we have certain attributes. And I've noticed collaborating with a number of women and actually the students who come to us or people who come to us from universities, it's 90% as women who sign up. So that's kind of strange. It's another conversation of why women are drawn or interested in creativity, but we're not seeing always the parity in the jobs. It's a disconnect, right? Like that doesn't make any sense because when I came out of graduate school and I went to school for design for theater, film, and television, we were mostly women. How like, many of those women stayed in the industry, right? I mean, that's the problem. That's the problem. They get pushed out. So there's a real disconnect. And I think the disconnect is that the industry has been hostile, like seriously hostile to women. In fact, the United States and across industries, there's a hostility to women. And a lot of it is just sort of ingrained and naturalized into how we behave and that America has historically been very hateful towards women. And I can give you an example, okay? And this might seem like a little bit of a jump, but this is absolutely an example. So I was a DJ many years ago, a club DJ, one of 
two or three women working in the clubs and everybody would talk trash about Madonna all the time. They would say she didn't have any talent. You know, everybody else was writing her songs for her. They couldn't believe that she had any real skin in the game. She was just a dancer, whatever. She was just making music videos. But I tell you, anytime you played a Madonna song, they would all fly to the dance floor. So it wasn't that they didn't like her work. (laughs) They didn't like her. They didn't like her ambition. They didn't like that she was fine with her sexuality and that she let everybody know about it. Meanwhile, Prince is doing the same thing and people aren't hating on him for the same thing. She had monster hits across the board. People didn't hate her music. They hated her. And that's a problem. You know, they found her abrasive. So many things, so many things. And the way she was treated on David Letterman, I mean, gross. I mean, not everyone will agree completely with Hillary Clinton's politics, but the same thing we, as women. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even if you share her politics, and I don't find her politics offensive or anything, but people would find a reason. It's as though as women, we have to apologize for our excellence. Like we have to say, well, I did this, but it's, it's, it's nothing really. You know, it's yeah. just this little thing I did, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and we've got to unlearn that, right? right? This is some, we have to unlearn that. So if somebody gives you a compliment, just say, thank you. (laughs) Acknowledge it and then keep moving because you have another thing to accomplish after that. But yeah. And also it goes both ways. Like everybody who gives the compliment or maybe is being a detractor needs to rethink how they're wired as well. And we've been taught to behave this way. So it does take some rewiring and a bit of work. And it's not necessarily easy work to do because it's a societal problem. It's across every sector and across how we behave. And it's just something we all need to work on. I mean, I do it too, you know, or I did. I mean, it's taken me years to like unlearn the nonsense that I was taught, like the pylons on Twitter. It'll be like a pylon. If some woman does something that's like a little bit off, the pylon is insane. And if a guy misbehaves, not quite the same pylon. So we need to figure out ways to fix ourselves as individuals and as a society and our contribution In the film industry, we hope will also trickle out, you know, because the film industry is the purveyor of culture across the world. So if we can change the film industry, maybe that will help trickle out in other sectors as well and and into people's consciousness. Well, one thing that I found, and I want to bring Allison in as well, because you are a producer and that's an even more male-dominated profession, I would say. And so it's amazing and, you know, Emmy Award winning program and all of this. But before we go on to your individual artistic achievements, one thing that I observe and why I didn't understand why there wasn't more parody in the film and television and entertainment is that I have noticed that women tend to be more easygoing collaborators, like not having to always take ownership. And this just seems to me that's the prime attribute that you need to do to work in media is that you have to collaborate, not have to be, it's my idea, it has to be done this way. And if I can say so, because it seems sexist, but I just have found that when collaborating with men, you have to almost sell it like it's their idea. Women will accept there's another good idea. We're, we're all just building. That's what I've noticed. You know, I mean, I think that that's probably part of the problem. And just like Tema was saying, it's like men come off sometimes overly confident, even when it's not true. They don't have the skills or the experience or the ability. They still come off like they do. And women are a little more modest in that way. And I think that that's probably why it seems like there are many more men 
producing than there are women. There are actually a lot of female producers. I just don't think we're as out there and vocal about the job that we're doing because we're just working our butts off to stay at the place where we're at and do our job and, and not mess anything up. Because if we mess up, like Tema was saying, we get way more flack for it than if men do. So I, I would say that that's probably the reason why that seems like the case. We are behind the scenes making sure nothing fails and that everything is handled. And, you know, we're not out there, you know, looking for the awards and the accolades just like men maybe are. Yeah. I mean, men get to fail up. We don't get to fail upward. You know, we've all seen so many guys who just do an awful job and somehow people protect them. They support them. They help them rise. We see it all the time. Whereas women, it's like you make one mistake or you're not likable or whatever. And it's like, oh, you know, like can't work with her. Whereas there's lots of really unlikable guys. I mean, Harvey Weinstein, he's a yeller. He's a yeller. He's a rapist. I mean, Jesus, this guy is like, he made people money, but lots of people make people money. But how did this guy continue to fail upward? Seriously. How'd this guy have a career? And for so many years. And it does make one feel a little bit uneasy. I don't want to say culpability, but a lot of people have to be turning their heads for that to happen. Absolutely. Really bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the problem is that it's not just like one or two people. This is a societal issue. Like our entire society has supported rape culture for like ever. You know what I mean? It wasn't until like the 90s that it was not illegal to rape your wife. Okay. So it's insane. The hatred that women have put up with and our status in society has got to change and it's got to happen quickly because I'm not waiting 40 years to fix. So that's why we had to start this organization because I'm over it. Quite frankly, I just got over it and we had to move forward and kind of fix some of these problems. And that's why we have come up with ways to combat those issues. And part of that is through training, educating, mentorship, and also, you know, giving opportunities to women and showing men that women can do these jobs and making sure that they see them in the roles that women are looking to get into. So, you know, making sure that we see women in the grip and electric departments and in the sound department. For those people who have been on a majority female crew or at least a balanced crew, there's a different feeling. It's a totally different vibe. It's a nicer, more pleasant atmosphere because people aren't able to be hostile and terrible to each other or terrible to women or people of color. The more diverse your crew is, the more comfortable everyone can feel. That's certainly a big part of this. And it goes for when it's comfortable behind the camera, then the people on camera have a more pleasant experience as well. I can't even imagine being an actress doing some sort of sex scene and having a sea of men staring at them as they're like the only female maybe other than like the makeup and wardrobe people. So there's certain things that we can do that are going to make the experience so much better for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I've actually been on set during a love scene. I was actually the art director for a project that was shooting, and it was. There was a whole bunch of guys all around, and they're, like, making comments. And it was a young woman. She was, like, 22, you know? And she's only wearing, like, little panties and a little pads. 
for a love scene. And I insisted that I be in the room and be near her, you know, and I made up an excuse because I didn't really need to be there. But I made up an excuse because this poor young woman is there and the director is literally turning to the cinematographer saying, yeah, this is bringing me back to the good old days. And I'm like, oh my God, this, is this a necessity? Do we need to speak this way? You know, I made the excuse. I was like, oh yeah, I have to make sure that the sheets are just right. You know, I mean, whatever, but so wrong that all these guys are kind of drooling over the situation and not being professional. And this is the thing, the men have to reach the same level of professionalism that the women have been held to, right? So we've always been held to a level of working hard and being professional. And now it's time for the men to reach that level of professionalism. The other thing they're gonna have to do, the other adjustment that may be a little challenging for some guys is that now that there are more women who are getting into these positions, they're gonna have to step up at home a little more because we have been the support the emotional support, the like home slavery support where we're like doing all the dishes and taking care of everything for them so they can have a career. But now that's going to have to balance as well because it's absolutely not appropriate for somebody to work a 10, 12, 14 hour day and then have to take care of all the emotional labor, all the physical labor in the home, do everything. It's not appropriate. So everybody else in the home is going to have to step up because it's time for women to shine and for women to have the ability to take on these jobs because we should be going for the best talent, not the best male talent, the best talent. And sometimes the best man for the job is a woman. That's just the reality. So everybody's going to have to jump in and rethink our society and how we behave. In recent years, there's been a lot more social discourse on the topic of how women are represented, how they're treated in the film industry. Would you say that there's been positive change rather than, as you had mentioned, the incremental change, that there has been real consistent change in the film production industry? Well, the numbers don't lie. So the answer is yes, the short answer. They've absolutely gone in the right direction. So starting like 2017 until we're in 2021, the numbers have steadily gone up for women and people of color, steadily. And they haven't gone backwards. And that's what's remarkable because like I say, it would be like one year go like literally inching up like a margin of error. <laughs> like 3% and then back 2% and then up 1%. I was ridiculous. And now it's going up significantly and those numbers have not fallen back. My fear is that like, let's say that all of a sudden we decided we didn't want to do women in media tomorrow. It would all go back again because that is historically what's happened. The good thing is, you know, regardless of how it came to be, you know, the studios, the networks, the award shows, they all recognize that this is a huge problem and that the public is not going to stand for the discrimination anymore. Mm -hmm. And so they are instituting mandates, which, you know, hopefully in the future, we won't need them. But it is showing that someone's taking it seriously, whether it's because of money, right? Marketing and dollars, and they know that it's bad for, for them if they make certain choices. They're going to be held accountable now. And that's good because that's going to only help us when we get calls from the studios saying, we need to find women in these departments or in these jobs because we don't know how to find them. We know that they must be out there. Help us. And so that's part of what we're doing is helping those shows, those movies, find the talented crew from our membership. 
And so it's nice to see that we're getting those calls now and we're getting the opportunities to be able to introduce new up and coming talent and people who have been around for a while, but there's just not been a, a lot of them, unfortunately. So it's making sure that those women are getting those career opportunities and moving up into those sustaining jobs where people can make a living doing this and get out of like indie film world. Exactly. Because there are lots of women making movies. There have always been a lot of women making movies, but they're making them at the low budget range. And there's nothing wrong with low budget films. It's just, there should be more women with the opportunity to move up into higher budget, better production value jobs. Because otherwise they get stuck or even worse, they would go into what's called director jail, right? So it's someone like Mimi Leader who directed Deep Impact, which was, you know, big, splashy, you know, it was like Steven Spielberg's first production house, their first big, big show. And it was a huge hit, massive hit. And then she had another one, there was another big hit. And then she made one film, Pay It Forward, which didn't hit the numbers that everybody wanted it to hit. It still made money, still did okay, but immediately, boom, she didn't get to make another feature for many, many years. She had to work in TV. Now, this is at a time when television was not considered prestigious. It was cheap. It was like, you know, the redheaded stepchild, as it were. But because all these super talented women went to TV because they couldn't get film work, which was considered more prestigious, they changed the television industry because they could take chances. They could do exciting things. People want to see what they know but different. They wanted a little bit different. And women were able to take those chances because they had the experience, but the budgets weren't as insane as they are for film. So that's why we now have this golden age of television, because all of these women were able to take those chances and were given the ability to make these incredible shows. I mean, look at the great shows that we have now and how diverse and inclusive and interesting television is now, whereas film is lagging, unfortunately. And I love movies, but unfortunately the film side of it is lagging. And that's because they have kind of dinosaured themselves. You know, they're not allowing more women or they hadn't traditionally. The more they bring more women into those sustainable jobs, whether it's above the line or below the line, the better their product is going to be, the more prestigious it'll be for everybody across the board, the men and the women, and it'll raise the profile of our film industry that we love. That's amazing. I hadn't realized that correlation and it really makes sense now because I was just wondering, and I think maybe I shouldn't ask this or it's controversial, but say when I read a book, right? You can tell even if a subject matter might be traditionally masculine thriller type thing, you know when it's written by a woman. So when you're looking at television or film and it's you know directed by a woman or that has more parody in terms of its crew and creatives, what are some of those things that you feel? Because you're saying with the golden age, of television was you know, spurred by these women who had to find their home there. And so you're speaking to things like nuance. And I think women are natural storytellers. I think that we're naturally detail oriented and we're always looking. And part of that's even like loving gossiping. But, you know, you can tell the difference when a man tells a story. It's kind of like, I don't know, maybe charging ahead and missing often. I've noticed some little details and the woman will be saying, but what happened? What was it like? What was this? So when you watch uh, film or television that's created with these more balanced crews and creatives. What are things that you're noticing? Different worldview. You know what I mean? Different experience and worldview. And I think 
some of the guys I'm afraid got into like this formulaic style that was a little bit easy for a while. And eventually it just kind of got played out. But now that they've got more women and people of color, I mean, we all have similar experiences. We all laugh, we all cry, we all suffer loss. We all have joyous moments in our lives, but our particular circumstances color our lens of how we see these things. So I think if you get one view of, you know, who's important or what is important, it leaves a lot of people out of the viewing audience. It doesn't speak to everybody. Whereas I feel like if you have the point of view of multiple people, you're literally reaching out to a broader audience and you're getting other people's worldview as best as you can. I mean, clearly you're not going to speak for everybody in one project. That's not possible. But the more inclusive voices you have, the more money you're going to make. Okay. And the better your product is going to be. Because I may have lost a family member, but the way I experience loss is going to be different than the way you experience it, Mia, or the way my husband might experience it. And those rich stories are going to make it much more interesting. Exactly. And speaking of untold stories or stories that had been perhaps a little neglected, Allison, your exciting Emmy award-winning show, After Forever, touches on members of the gay community that we hadn't really seen. And just tell us a little bit about that and how it came to, to be and how it was to be a part of that. Yeah. So the co-creators, Michael Slade and Kevin Spirita, they had actually worked on a show together a long time ago and had never actually collaborated. And they ran into each other and both were interested in telling a story about older gay men you know, and what it's like to be an older gay man and not having seen themselves on TV, themselves on the screen, they felt like there was something missing, you know, and they wanted to tell that story. Kevin, as an actor, also wanted to play that role. He's a good looking guy and he's always cast as the charming straight guy. And he was like, well, that's not me, you know, and obviously as an actor, he can play those roles, but it was important for him to also play gay roles. And so they came together and wanted to write a story about love and loss, but also didn't want it to be about AIDS. Although the majority of their time growing up through the 80s and the 90s in New York and dealing with Broadway, they lost a lot of people, but that's not the story they wanted to tell. Those stories have been told and there's a time and a place for those stories, but they wanted to tell a modern story about loss now because we all deal with loss. Like Tim, I was saying in this particular show, it's um, dealing with cancer. Unfortunately, many of us have or will deal with loss because of cancer or other diseases or COVID, right? So, you know, just to tell a story that really is mainstream, the themes are themes that anybody, regardless of their sexual orientation, can relate to. So it was important to tell this story. And I think that that's why it has been so well received, because it's a universal story about people we don't normally see. So it was a real honor to be brought on to produce with them. I was introduced to them through another director that I had worked with because they had never made any streaming content before. And I've done a lot of that. So it's been quite a road and we're, you know, looking at producing season three coming up as things are hopefully getting a little better and coming out of the pandemic, we'll be able to go back into production. Bring a handkerchief. Definitely. <laughs> when you watch the show, make sure you have a big box of Kleenex with you. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, Allison, you had mentioned that with After Forever, that one thing that was so critical to the show's emotional core is that it's for people who haven't seen themselves represented before. Do you think that's something that, on a large scale for both women and members of the LGBTQ community, do you think that's something that we're starting to see more of? And where do you think media can improve in representing those stories that are often untold? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think the the good news is I feel that we've come beyond the coming out stories. You know, like I feel like we had a a good long time where any gay themed story was either about coming out or lots of sex and craziness, right? So (laughs) luckily we're kind of beyond that and we can tell more nuanced stories about the community. And After Forever certainly doesn't touch on all of it. It's one person's story or two people's story about one part of this world, one segment of the United States, and that's it. And there's plenty of more stories that need to be told and should be pursued on the screen, but it's a start, you know, it's like even, you know, one of our camaraderie projects is about a little girl and her experience and she's deaf or partially deaf. And, you know, there's also, you know, people with disabilities, there's many different types of disabilities. I was talking to somebody about a feature film about a teenage girl who is in a wheelchair. And it's like talking about those different types of disabilities, even in the wheelchair community. So there are so many stories and that's not even touching on, you know, people of color and all of the different people that are represented out there that have stories to be told. And we're starting to see that. It's just like what Tema was saying, the more diverse we have behind the camera, the more comfortable and the more accepting of these new stories and telling these stories in different ways and in nuanced ways, the more it's gonna be possible. So I think all of this is showing that we've had a lot of growth. My name is Jackie Lamb, and I am an associate environmental podcast producer and interviewer at The Creative Process. I am also a rising senior at American University studying film and media arts. I could relate to what Tema said about the importance of having a space where women can support each other in their chosen field. As an aspiring writer, I found my community as an American University contributor for Her Campus. For those who don't know, Her Campus is an online publication for female college journalists with 400 campus chapters. Through this organization, I've had the chance to interview notable women in media, such as CNN contributor Anna Navarro and chief spokesperson for Vice President Kamala Harris, Simone Sanders. It's empowering to hear how these women became successful in their careers, and it's also challenged me to become more comfortable with public speaking. This opportunity has provided me with a supportive community of college women who are passionate about what they believe in. Another element of her campus that I love is the mentorship aspect. There are events during the year where you can speak with former members who are now professional journalists, broadcasters, and editors. My time with her campus has shown me that it is possible for women to excel in the communications field and to be confident in my work. Now, back to the interview. Years ago, I was a producer on the web series, Anyone But Me, and that was about two teenage girls who were dealing with their sexuality. And that was the time for those coming out stories and kind of understanding themselves and those like coming of age stories. And now we're moving 
into news stories. So I definitely have seen, even just in my own body of work, I've seen the change happen and news stories being told. And it's so wonderful that this is the trajectory. And I feel like it's kind of affected the new generation, Generation Z, in a really positive way in that they feel that they can express themselves in so many different ways that weren't available to my generation. So it's very normal and ordinary to talk about being transgender, about being pansexual, being gender fluid, gender nonconforming. All of this is just like, oh yeah, I'm pan. Oh great, I'm pan. You know what I mean? It's like that show, Euphoria, right? So many different types of young characters with different perspectives. And I think it's just wonderful that those stories are being told on mainstream networks. So it's really nice. It's like Tema has a daughter who's in that age group. And it's nice to be able to see through that lens that it's not a big deal to them, right? These things don't matter. It's like, whatever, I don't care, like moving on, right? So it's nice to see that. It's all about seeing themselves in the world, you know, and that's what you're doing. Women in media is so important. And I also want to speak about some of the details of what your day looks like, because a lot of people, they'll say, oh, I want to work in media or film or television. And I think that they'll just say, I want to be a director, or if not in front of the camera, they want to be a director because they don't know what the other roles are. It's both of your roles, like a producer is this thing. People think, oh, you raise money. And I know that's the thing. And then with production or art direction, I think people can see it, but I think they assume, I, I swear the better the story is told they think oh that was just their world it was just there it just seemed to be like that was it they don't think about it was created and so if you could both speak to when you're starting off on a project when you're deciding whether this is something you can be passionate enough to to go into and you're having those conversations with the different creatives or the writers or directors or actors and and Tema when you're coming in and you're looking at the scripts and having some of those conversations and what are some of your first steps just so people really understand and young women going into this could understand that there's a lot of really exciting roles behind the lens. I think well number one these days the job looks like this where we're sitting behind our desk in our own homes. (laughs) But really what it comes down to, you know, for me as a producer, there's different time periods when I might be brought onto a project. Sometimes it's something I'm developing myself and with writers and creators. Sometimes it's something that's brought to me and there's already financing in place and they say, okay, we have money, but we don't know how to do this. We don't know how to make this, how to build a team, how to find the right people, the right collaborators. Or sometimes somebody comes to me and says, we don't have the money. We just have the script. How do we start? We need materials to go out and get financing. So for me, I come on to a project, you know, at many different times, depending on what it is, but it always comes down to when there's a meaningful script or a project or a collaboration with certain people, that's what is the most important thing to me. And also what the market is interested in and what I think is going to do well out there in the world. So, you know, for me, I'm looking for those unique projects. I'm always also looking for a way to do something either, you know, experimental that's never been done before or use new technology. So I'm always finding myself kind of either going towards the new story or the new way of telling a story or the new technology, because it's interesting to me. And every project is so different. But I think also back to what you were asking about mentioning the different roles that exist in a film crew. You know, whether you're talking about pre-production, production, or even post-production, and then there's marketing and distribution. I mean, there are hundreds, if not thousands of jobs that people can do that are good paying career jobs in this industry that are not a writer, producer, director, actor. 
right? I mean, we can't do our job without all of the other people. And so I think that that's the unfortunate thing. You don't come out of college or you don't come out of school knowing every job that exists. But I think it's unfortunate that we kind of glamorize the people in those jobs because really they can't do their job without everybody else. So like part of what we've been doing this summer for women in media and for our members is we partnered with MBS Stages. They have stages all over LA, but then also all over the world. And they partnered with us to do a training program so that we can show our members and women in the industry you know, what jobs exist in the set lighting department or the grip department. And and then within those departments, what are all those jobs? And what do those jobs do? Like rigging, lighting board operator, dolly grip. There's like an entire department that is available to the people that can learn the skills. And so that's one of the things that we've been so excited about this summer is doing this training program introducing our members to those jobs, to the people working at the highest level in those jobs, and then coming out of it and being able to get hired and learn more. So, you know, and the same with our department, Tema just came out of a training weekend doing set construction, scenic, et cetera. And, you know, art department's huge. There are so many jobs there. So making sure that our members are exposed to that just gives them more power to go after those jobs and have those sustainable careers. Absolutely. And they had so much fun. Oh my gosh. Everybody was blown away and you don't know what you're going to gravitate towards until you try it. You don't know what's going to be really good fit because sometimes the perception is that to be a grip, you need to be big and bulky. And there's some magic to putting a dolly together. And honestly, nobody comes out of the womb knowing how to do any of this. There really is no special magic to it as much as some people might like you to think. So Being exposed and realizing that, yes, you can do it is really empowering for people. And traditionally, it's been the wayward nephew, the son, who had somebody teaching them how to use a screw gun, how to tie knots, saying, hey, you're going to come on set with me today. And it's going to be like, take your nephew to work day, and I'm going to teach you the ropes, and you're going to apprentice with me, and then I'm going to get you a gig. That hasn't happened for the girls, because like I was saying, we have this systemic issue that we have within our society. That's beginning to change more and more. And we're creating a space where we can have our wayward nieces and daughters who we bring into a class and they get to connect with women. You know, we had a woman best boy, which is a very, very responsible job. She came in and she taught us as much as we could learn about electrics in a weekend and a half. She was right on it and put these women through their paces and they were just like mind blown. Right. So she's like our new like electrics auntie who's taking us on set and teaching us how to do all this stuff and pushing us to greatness. And we just adore cricket and everything that she did on the weekend and we had other teachers like for grip as well like cricket works on the marvel movies she's like best boy for marvel movies oh my god the responsibility you know and then the knowledge base to be that person is remarkable and that she made it up the ranks as a woman in a very i mean there's three percent women in her union three percent three percent women in the iatsi electrics union it's shameful you know what I mean? But that she made it to that level? Unbelievable. When she was looking around the room, right, at the 25 women who came to take that class and just said, I've never seen this many women in 
a room talking about electric and lighting in my life. Like I've never had this many women on a stage before. And she herself was inspired and blown away by the desire that she saw from the women that wanted to be there. It was a very emotional day, emotional in a really wonderful, loving, joyous way. I mean, everybody was just freaking out at how happy they were. So why not bring that emotion? Let's bottle that and bring that on set. How much better will our movies be if you can bottle that and bring it on set? How much more fun will our day be? Because you work a long day in the film industry. You know, a 10 is your light day. You're normally working 12, 14, 16 hour days. So it's exhausting and it's arduous work. So if you can have a little more joy, I mean, why wouldn't you put that on your set? It's true. Everyone says, well, the art should be sort of hard, but I think that when you enjoy yourself, it comes sort of easy. It's hard work, but it creates good art because people want to see something that comes out of you in a natural way. Just going back to, because it's still sort of a mysterious thing, what is an art director or production designer and how you go about it? Because we're often thinking, oh, well, that was a great performance. Or maybe we'll think a little bit about the cinematography. But do you have a, a book that you create, like a Bible for deciding your palette? Just walk us a little bit through that thinking process. I know it's different for every project because some often will think, oh, that was a great performance. But well, it was kind of this whole atmosphere that made us believe in the story. Right. So a lot of what we do is we fill in the entire environment. We make it so that you don't need the exposition. You're not walking into someone's home and somebody has to say, wow, you've got so much money. Oh my God. No, because we've designed the marble staircase. There's a big vase of flowers over here. All the many things that paint the picture as to the status that these people have, whether there's some laundry left over from the morning that they didn't get to. We set the stage and we tell you about these spaces and the people in them. Maybe you want it to feel like someone is a fish out of water. So how are we going to show that without saying it? Because that's the exposition that we want to avoid. You don't want to hit people over the head with the exposition. You want to put that into the design and the effects that people have that will tell the story of who they are. And every single thing is really important and it really, really matters because even a non-choice is a choice. So there is a real process to it and, and everybody kind of does it the same way, but differently. You read the script and you have to do a script breakdown so that you know what you're designing for and so that you can have an intelligent conversation with the director. This is even before you have the job, right? You have to go in and get the job. So you come in with that. You come in with reference pictures. This is how I want it to feel. These are the color choices that come to mind. And a lot of it is changeable between your interview and getting it painted and done on set. But you have to start somewhere. You can't just be in your head with this because we get concrete very, very quickly. The rubber hits the road fast for art department. So, you know, you have to design it. You come up with how do we want this to feel? And then what are the exact kind of furniture, the kind of wallpaper they'll have? And you give samples and you talk about it to make sure you're in the right direction. What is the right kind of architecture for this situation or this kind of family or this recreation center, whatever it is that you're designing and why. We're always asking why. 
Why does it look this way? Why does it feel this way? What are we trying to convey to the audience? Because we're storytellers as much as anybody else. We decide where the windows and the doors go, and that's going to affect your lighting as well, which will then affect camera and lighting and all of that. We're going to set the furniture, which is going to affect the blocking. All these things come back to the production designer and the art department. Is it a cold space? Is it a warm space? Is it a, a space that's loving? Or is it a space where there's a lot of anger and destruction? All these things are so important to us and we have to really give it some very deep thought and collaborate with our creative teammates, whether it's the set decorator who's gonna help you find the furniture or it's going to be the DP who's going to light and shoot this and come up with the camera movements. And we're gonna work with them as really strong collaborators. And then once we come up with our design Bible with how we want things to feel, very often you'll be in your office and you'll have all the pictures up on the wall and people will come through. And I've had actors come through. I was working on a film with Eric Stoltz and he came through and we talked about stuff. He was like, oh, that's me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Normally I don't talk to the actors, but sometimes they do come through. Of course, it's all approved by the director as well. You don't want the actors seeing things that are in flux, but it's conversations that trickle out to the many departments and your creative juices just go bananas. It's so much fun. Then you have to get to the drafting you have to make sure even for a location, very often you'll draft because you have to put in a furniture plot and then those go to the director, they go to lighting, they go to the DP so that everybody can kind of figure out their shot plots and where their lights want to go and where the actors are going to move. And the directors and the DPs will make like their little football player diagrams on top of your drafting so they can try something. And if they don't like it, they can throw it out. It's so much easier to do it on paper than to get there on the day and try to do it there. It's not good if you get to set, you're like, oh, not what I pictured. That's not a good feeling. So we always try to do as much as we can in pre-production to make sure that everybody is on the same page and that everybody is as prepared as possible so that you have a really smooth shoot. So that once you get into production, my job is essentially done. Once we're in production, I should just be walking in in the morning and saying, oh, I love that's good. That's good. You know what? Let's move that object over like two inches. That should be where it is. I approve everything. Boom. I'm off to the next set, making sure that that's ready if we're shooting it on the day or the next day or somewhere down the line. Or if you have something that's much bigger that has to be prepared in advance, you always have to think many steps ahead of where the crew has to be. And for my department, I've always got three crews working at the same time. I've got the people who are babysitting the set, who are making sure that your continuity is good, everything, the integrity of the design is intact, and they sit with the set. And then there's another group who are off making the next set happen, making sure that that's going to be ready on time, looking beautiful. And then there's another crew that is wrapping out the previous set, making sure that all of the furniture is returned, that the walls are coming down, or that the house or the location is being stored to spec and that we're leaving it as clean, if, if not cleaner than how we found it. It's a lot of paperwork, a lot of wrangling, and the design side of it tends to feel a little bit shorter than, say, the paperwork and the management side. But it's an incredibly exciting thing to see your ideas and your designs and your emotion get put onto the big screen or the small screen. Incredibly gratifying.
And so when you're working on projects and you have to deal with processing all of this input from people in various departments and coordinating everything and making sure that it's just how you want it to be, how do you balance that level of collaboration while also making sure that you stay true to your own artistic vision? Well, there's a couple of different things. Sometimes you have to bend. It happens. And you've got to be okay with that. Like, you don't I'm going to take some of, we don't have the budget for that. You can't do oh, that. Yeah. Yeah. That happens. It happens. <laughs> and then you, you get creative. You think about how you can beg, borrow and steal stuff, or you come up with a creative way to get what you want and you bring your own skills to the table. And like I say, you pull favors. You want to preserve the integrity of the design as much as you can. And then, you know, sometimes you get, an approved overage. If the director is adamant about something, you're like, yeah, production just told me they're cutting whatever. And then the director fights for something for you. Sometimes they find the money, but often they don't. They just say like, no, you figure it out. And then you do, you do your best to figure it out. Otherwise it gets cut. I mean, honestly, that's just the reality of it. Sometimes something that you really want will indeed get cut or, or you'll consolidate stuff, right? You'll consolidate locations to help with budget or, you know, for many reasons, but there's so many things that, go ahead, Allison. But your prep and your research and all of the work that comes in during the beginning of the process that helps inform how you can react to those, either those questions, those problems, the challenges, the collaboration. If somebody says, but we actually kind of need this to happen over here and this needs to be in this place. And then Tema can say, well, actually that's not accurate because of X, Y, and Z, this is the research I did. And then everybody can make an informed decision about how to move forward, right? So as long as everybody's done their work, their research, their prep, then everybody can figure out what's the best way forward. So I think that that's really important. That's absolutely true. I have two questions because we didn't touch on your body of work, both Allison and Tema. What are some of those projects or collaborations or friendships that you made the whole reason why you have drawn to this art form? And this is the reason you're doing it. Oh, goodness. Yeah. I mean, I have friends that go back many decades from our many war stories working together because some jobs are hard and some are just an absolute joy to work on. But no matter what, at the end of the day, you make friends with people and you end up being family forever because you've been through it. I think that's a really big part of it is the people that you get to work with. A lot of them are just really remarkable, wonderful people. And you share an experience that no one else outside of your little bubble making this movie will ever experience again. And some of those projects also that you are really proud to have been a part of as well. I know American Splendor or Kissing Jessica Stein, what you really enjoyed. Well, I think... Honestly, a lot of it is seeing that these films have moved on and have a life is quite a remarkable thing for me, is seeing that I was on an airplane a few months ago and Kissing Jessica Stein was on the airplane. I couldn't believe it. And my mom was like, oh yeah, you worked on that. I'm like, yeah. And I could show my daughter. I was like, look, mommy's movie is on, is here, you know, and she's a teenager. She was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but it was so cool to be able to share that and to feel like the movie has really held up and that the design has really held up. And to remember the shots where we had a location that fell through and we were able to like 
pick it up and make it work somewhere else. Because exactly like what Allison was saying, we did our prep, we did our research, we made sure that we had a solid design. We had a location that was on the Upper East Side that was on a second floor. It was a beautiful, gorgeous gallery with a different kind of light. But we had everything we needed for what equaled gallery. And when we lost the location, we were able to move it to a downtown gallery that was actually an underground gallery. So even though it felt different in a lot of ways, we were able to still put into that gallery the many things that felt like gallery to us. And the same was true of multiple locations. I mean, these things happen. So you just have to be ready to make those changes as they come up. And uh, Alison? I think what Tema was saying is true. There's the experiences on set that are memorable. And then there's the experiences that you witness offset with the fans and the audience. I certainly recall a web series that I produced called What a Lark that was about a woman dealing with the question of like, she basically decided she didn't want to have kids and the pressure of being a woman and having to have kids or not. And she found support and guidance from a drag queen. And the most touching scene was when this drag queen took off her makeup and it was kind of this like reveal and kind of the backwards through the removing of the hair and the makeup and the eyelashes and all these things. Everybody was hysterically crying by the end of this scene, just because it was so emotional for the performer, but then also for everybody on set. I assume that came through to people who watched it. But for me, that's like one of the moments on set that I'll never forget because our DP, our ACs, our electricians, everybody just had tears streaming down their faces. And that's just something that our crew got to experience. But then it's things like After Forever, where we get emails from fans or people who reach out and say how much the show helped them with their own grief of dealing with the death of someone close to them. And you're just like, wow, through this story, we've touched so many lives and hopefully helped people. And that's always just amazing to see how much our stories can affect people that we will never meet in real life. It's true. It's true. I mean, I've had a number of women who either they're lesbians or bisexual or they've been experimental. They love the story and the bond, the friendship between the two characters and the mom. And they've told me how much the film means to them out of the blue. Like they'll ask me something worked on and I'll tell them that and they'll get really emotional about it. And it's very gratifying to know that it's helped people, that it's meant a lot to them. Because in the end, that is what makes us human. Telling our stories and sharing these stories, that's the most human thing you can do. It's what separates us from, well, maybe animals do tell their own stories. I don't know. I don't speak feline. But certainly human beings, that is just such a human need. We have to do that. And we do it every day, right? You come home, you tell your family about your day, your friend, whomever, you unload about your day, all these things. We have to do it and we have to receive them too. It's a necessity. So what we do is incredibly powerful and very meaningful. So it's an absolute privilege to be able to do that. You've just come to my last question, which is really about the importance of the arts. What is that for you? And as you think about the future, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Well, I think it's that exactly, that the arts are nourishment that we have to have. I think some people don't think of it as work, and I think that's an absolute mistake. I think being in the arts is work, and I think people should be compensated I think that our country doesn't have a proper 
fully funded NEA, I think is a disgrace. Whereas other countries do have a lot of funding for the arts and I think they're richer for it because I think even though commerce is important, money is important, absolutely. But what makes you happy, what helps you connect to human beings, I think that's equally as important. And I think it deserves full funding from our government. Alison? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I think that there are a lot of problems in the world. There always have been and always will be. But I think that we've reached this point right now where I think compassion and understanding people is really important. And I think that one of the only ways we can get through this is through telling stories and through art. So I completely agree. People are like, oh, this isn't brain surgery. No one's going to die if we can't get this, which is absolutely true, usually. But we do have, as artists, we do have a huge influence over other industries, over other people and people outside our door and outside our country. And I think that it's imperative that we continue telling our stories and making art so that we can hopefully see the change. That's absolutely true. I mean, we have been the purveyor of cultures going back ages. I really feel like we tried so hard in the LGBTQ community to move towards gay marriage for so long, so long, and to get gay rights for decades. But it was TV shows like Will and Grace that showed a normalized gay person. This was revolutionary at the time. People could identify with modern family and that made somebody who they might not know, less scary as it were, has really pushed the envelope. And I think it really helped make gay marriage the law of the land because it was able to push the society in the right direction. I think they have to work in tandem because a lot of the stories about gay people prior to that were very negative, really bad, and it needed to change. And just that little bit of pushing things in the right direction, I think helped move our legislators. I think so. You said that it can't die if you're deprived of arts, but I think you can die of loneliness and you can mm -hmm. die from hate crimes. And it gives us a reason to live, I find. Even people who aren't artists, if we didn't have stories, something would be gone. I think we would somehow be kind of husks. That's absolutely true. Did you know that a lot of people died of literally broken hearts during the pandemic? literally their hearts broke. <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't realize that this was a thing, but I was in a hospital with a family member who had something unrelated. And the technician told me that he had met more people, especially women whose hearts had broken. And what a crazy notion. You know, you think of it as a metaphor, but it's actually, it's a thing. Well, thank you both for healing our hearts by the stories mm -hmm. that you tell. So thank you, Tema Steg and Alison Venor, for all you do in your art and through Women in Media to tell complex, nuanced stories that need to be told, for your commitment to promoting gender balance in film and entertainment, and your advocacy for women, women identifying, and gender non-conforming filmmakers. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you so much. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Jackie Lamb. 
Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.